good afternoon everyone <clears throat> praise the lord here we are if you're joining us for the first time we're in a series going through the book of john we've summarized the whole book trying to emphasize the main point who is jesus and it's really hard sometimes especially as you go through the different parts of the scripture to to look at what's being said without missing out Jesus. It's, it's really difficult. It's really challenging because very often the first thing we want to do is when we read the Bible is we want to read ourselves into the st- into the story. You know what I'm saying? You hear about the story of David and Goliath, and everybody wants to be David who slays Goliath, and that's really not the first place to start. And and so what we try to do is give the, the book a title that focuses immediately on Jesus and he is God manifest in the flesh he's a hundred percent human but he's also a hundred percent God hence Superman HD standing for human HD human and divine and we're in John chapter 7 one verse in chapter 7 and then we're jumping into chapter 8 today so we're going to read verse 53 in a minute right to verse 11 in chapter 8 and The title for our message today is Jesus, the ultimate judge. Jesus, the ultimate judge. And can I ask you, as you're opening, and I'm saying whether mechanically or electronically, as you're you're opening to the text, my, um, my method of teaching, and I'm saying, is such that I just want you to keep your Bible or your window opened on the text that's why I put all the associated verses up so you don't have to turn there my desire is that you will keep your face your nose your eyes in the text amen so the only time you have to look at anything will be on the screen or or maybe at me I don't know (laughs) depending on which one you find more interesting and Jesus the ultimate the ultimate judge you know a long time ago 30 years, maybe 35 years ago, way before I got married, me and my brother used to live together in Fulton Heath. As you know the story, I originally lived, I was, I was born in Bedford, grew up in, in London most of my life, spent a few years in Jamaica, came back when I was about 20, 21. And when I came back, I sent for my brother who was still in Jamaica, and he came over and we began to live together. We, lived, we had a flat in Fulton Heath. And both working in the post office at that time. And my brother, I don't know where he got it from to this day. It's funny, as I was thinking about it this week, I thought, I must ask him where he got this boomerang from. Because he ain't never been to Australia. And I don't know anyone, or at that point, I didn't know anyone who had been to Australia who would have brought back a, a boomerang. Let me tell you, this boomerang, yeah, it was so big. It was like one foot by one foot kind of in shape, in size. And you know the shape of a boomerang is kind of like angled at 90 degrees, right? This thing was, it was made of wood. So it was extremely heavy. Now, that boomerang, as much as me and him, we knew what it was and we know what it does, but never ever did we put that to practical application. Because I know if you ever threw that thing knowing what it does, you better duck or run for cover when it comes back. You know, one foot is the size of a ruler, like a regular ruler we used to use in school, 12 inches, right? Imagine, and it's made of wood, the thing was heavy. 
My point is, when you throw a boomerang, be careful because it will eventually make its way back to you. Right? That's if you throw it properly. But for, for, the, for the purpose of the illustration, right? When you throw that thing, it's come. <laughs> boomerang. You in John chapter 7? All right, let's read verse 53, which is the last verse, right? To chapter 8, verse 11. Reading from the ESV. It says, They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act, who had been caught, excuse me, in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Would you please give us ears to hear and hearts that would be quick, willing and obedient to respond to what we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we begin to look at our text in detail, depending on what translation you use, you may see a footnote, parenthesis, or horizontal lines sectioning off this particular portion of scripture. Can you see parenthesis or a footnote or lines that separate this portion of the text off in your Bible? Well, here's a quote from Warren Wiersbe, along with a gentleman called F.F. F. Bruce. who are two modern conservative evangelical commentators with reference to this text. John 7, 53 to 8, verse 11. This does not appear in all of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Where it is found, it is not always found in this location that is in John's Gospel. Most scholars agree that the passage is a part of inspired scripture regardless of where it is placed. Now, there is strong argument on both sides, that is, that this text 
fits perfectly in this book. And there's internal evidence for that. But two, there's another strong argument that says it doesn't fit because it breaks from the flow of the narrative. Now, I'm, I, I think we will see the validity of both of those points of view over the next two weeks, this week and next week. Today, we'll focus on point one, that is, this text does fit perfectly into this part of John's Gospel. Now, where are we with reference to this part of the book? As we've been seeing that throughout John, there's a consistent reoccurrence, a reoccurring theme. Those that accept Jesus for who he is, and then you've got another group who reject him. We'll see, we'll see this, actual, this actual pattern repeated in verse 2 and 3. On one hand, you have the people who come, they come to him to learn and to, and to gain insight. But then on the other hand, you have those who come to Jesus. That is the religious leaders who come, but looking for a fight. Again, we see Jesus split the crowd into two categories. Those who believe versus those that don't. And verse 14 of chapter 7, we see that the Lord Jesus had been teaching where? In the temple. If you've got a paper Bible, it's always much easier to look back at a verse than it is on these swipe screen. You end up in another, in another book, in another app. Verse 14, we see that Jesus had been teaching in the temple. And there are possibly hundreds, probably thousands of people gathered in this temple area. In the section immediately before our section today, that is last week, Ashley reminded us that we were at least at the last day of a major Jewish festival called what? The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And, it, and, and, that in, and that in conjunction with many things that took place during this time, at a particular significant point, in view of all the people, all these people in the temple, the religious leaders, they'd come out and they'd pour out water that they'd collected from the Pool of Siloam. We hear a little bit about the Pool of Siloam. When Pastor E comes up to do chapter 9, they get the water from the pool of Siloam and they pour it out of these large pitchers in view of all of the people because this is an amazing part of the, of the festival and this would be the climax. It's the last day of this particular festival. And they were giving thanks for the rains that they'd received and they were prayerfully asking God to provide rain for the next season. And all of the people would be singing and all of the people would be worshipping and the focus would be on God. But practically, naturally speaking, the focus would be on the leaders who were pouring out this libation, pouring out this water. And at this high point, at, at this zenith, Jesus stands up. And he cries with a loud voice in chapter 7, verse, verse 37 to 39. And what he does then is he's, he, he upstages the priests. He, he, it's like all of this is going on and all the focus is on the festival and Jesus stands up and he upstages everything that's going on. Stating that what the high priests were doing was a mere shadow of that which pointed to him. 
We saw that in the last section. Jesus provides the true water of life. That is the Holy Spirit. We saw that Jesus is the son of David, the predicted prophet and the Christ from Bethlehem via Galilee. If you remember. We see Jesus impresses the people, leaving the scribes and the Pharisees frustrated. To say that these leaders were angry with Jesus would be an understatement. They've tried to arrest him, if you remember. And to add more flame to the fire, the temple police returned empty-handed. Like, like, where is he? And they turn around and they say, you know what? This guy ain't normal. He, he, he isn't like a regular human being. Like Dean said two weeks ago, He's out of this world. And even then, they're still not backing down. Then one of their very own number, one of their own parties stands up. And a few verses before our verses today, in chapter 7, verse 50 through to 51, we hear, it says, Nicodemus who had gone who, who had gone to him before remember Nicodemus had gone to Jesus in John chapter 3 who'd gone to him before and who was one of them one of their crew right said to them now listen if 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 at the egg Nicodemus in at the red he's part of their crew i just need you to see that point right verse 51 he says to them his crew does our law do what Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing? Ultimately, they tried to become judges of Jesus, not realizing that Jesus is the ultimate judge. And we're going to see this theme introduced by Nicodemus further developed today. Jesus, the ultimate judge. Verse 53 of the last chapter, where we started our reading. After this, it says, <clears throat> after Jesus mash up the dance, right? After this, it says, they, each, they went each to his own house. They all went home to be with their families. Wow. It's the end of the feast. The show's over, if you like. But actually, the showdown is just getting started. The believing crowd, they go home to rest and will come back the next day to hear more from Jesus. Wow. The religious leaders, they go home. But I'm not sure they went home to spend time with their family and kind of get over the, 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 long, the longness of the day and rest and recuperate to come back fresh tomorrow. I'm not sure that they went to do that. The religious leaders, I would suggest, go home to plot, plan and prepare. They go home to trick, trip and trap Jesus. They all went home And notice, and so did Jesus in a sense. He went home as best he could. Remember, Jesus didn't live in Jerusalem. He's from Galilee, right? But Jesus went home as best as he could to be with his family. That is God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. John chapter 8 verse 1 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Mount Olivet. This... Jesus' regular place to meet with his closest family. And this is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's, it's Jesus' secret place. Do you have one? 
And I'm constantly, I'm having to rediscover mine. Because it seems to go missing. Can I get a witness? That secret place where we meet with our Father. Now, it seems as if Jesus is anticipating what is coming, right? So, and we always see this in the life of the Lord Jesus. He always prays, not only when he knows drama's coming, but particularly when he knows drama's coming. Remember, fellas, can't you watch and pray? With me would be nice, but not just for me, but for you. He says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. There's always that need for us to find that secret place, particularly all the time, but particularly, you know what I mean? And, and I think that's kind of been brought up, I think, this week, last week, we had a time of prayer and fasting, and, you know, it just seems like we're going back into one of them seasons again, you know what I mean? Um, where the Lord is calling us, drawing us near, because I think he's got some issues that he wants to deal with, and um, it's issues outside that we can prayerfully affect, but how many of you know there, there are issues inside that he's wanting to affect you know what I'm saying, in all of our hearts. And I'm hoping that, you know what I'm saying, as I've had my, ha- my heart ransacked going through this text, I hope the Lord is going to do the same with you today in a glorious way. So look at verse 2. <clears throat> Early in the morning, <laughs> Jesus is gangster. Early in the morning, you know, I'd be complaining and moaning and murmuring and because of all what's been going on and to me and how could they and, you know, two twos, I haven't even been able to have a good, sh- like a shower and change my clothes or it's like early in the morning, he came again to the temple and it says all the people came to him and, and he sat down and he taught them. But these weren't the only ones who turned up early on this particular morning. That is to interact quote-unquote, with Jesus. Here is the other batch, that is the haters, right, in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were also there, and they're not alone, are they? Who do they have with them? It says that they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, for the sake of clarity, adultery is voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone who is not their spouse. Right? This is different from fornication. Fornication is two people having sex who are not necessarily married. Right? But adultery involves a married individual. Swear a man sexes up a next woman that is not his wife. And vice versa, because we can't. It's, it used to be loaded that way all the time, but we have to make sure we reference the other side, where women are actually engaging in this just as much as men are. And placing this woman in where? I don't know what your translation says. Mine says in the midst, right? In the middle, in the center. Where everybody could see. Can you see how these men have put this woman on trial? They've, can, you, can you see how they've put this woman in the dock, as it were? Verse 4. They, they said, now she's there, but they say to him, they say to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery... Wow, this this is serious stuff, right? 
So this woman just ha- hasn't just been involved in an, in an adulterous relationship sometime in the past. It says they caught her in the act. So these six inspectors, they continue to speak in verse 5. They said, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Jesus. Really, this has nothing to... I wonder who actually they're trying to put on trial. Like this here's the woman and yeah, she's done wrong and she's in the dock. But, Jesus. <laughs> You're the one that we're actually trying to put in the dock. What do you have to say in front of all of these people who understand the significance of this issue? Apparently at this point, it had been hundreds of years since anyone had been dealt with in this fashion. Really, this has nothing to do with this woman. She's just really a pawn in this, in their very twisted game. We'll see this more clearly in a moment. Okay, so, okay, so, so they come quoting Moses. On the surface, it seems impressive. You can hear everyone in the crowd going, raw. Oh my gosh. I mean, and that's just the fact that they caught this woman and they've put her right in the middle. That's enough to go, uh oh. But now to hear it put on Jesus, like, how are you going to respond to this? Oh my. It's like, it's like, oh my, like there's possibly certain man in the crowd taking bets. Like, oh, how's this going to pan out? I don't know. You see that, you know, them American films, you see a man in the corner with, with, I don't know, $50, $100 bills. And he's, it's like, you can imagine to some degree, you can probably cut the, the tension. You can, you can, it's, it, this is, this is really serious. The implications of the outcome. So like I said, they come quoting Moses as I get ahead of myself. They come quoting Moses on the surface. It seems really impressive. But if you scratch a little deeper, you find that these guys are not actually serious. That is, they are, they are, they are not serious about Moses' words. They're not serious about God's words. Let me show you why. The scriptural stipulation... The biblical stipulation is that when it comes to the issue of adultery, there's a need to charge both the woman and the man. The emphasis in the text is actually the other way around, at least with reference to how they're going on. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Like, where's, like, so, 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 so where's the man? So I'm telling you, they're not serious. Where's the man? Now, how many of you know that it take, it take, it, it takes two to tango, right? Some commentators suggest that this was a setup. And the man was possibly an associate of theirs that they were now trying to protect. These guys weren't serious about the law given by Moses. And you know what? They don't recognize. They don't recognize the fact that they don't recognize 
the law of Moses. But the thing is, Jesus does. That is, Jesus recognizes that they don't recognize. In the previous chapter, Jesus said, in verse 19, just as a reminder, he says to them, look, Jesus knows. Look, he says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law? What? If you did, why are you seeking to kill me? He knows that they don't, that they don't really care about the law. But the, the, the very scary thing is they don't recognize that they don't care about the law. Can you see that? See, and the people who were listening were also none the wiser. And that's an indictment on the leaders. Why? Because they weren't teaching people God's word. Not, 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 not verbally, properly, and also not by, not, not practically with their lives. It's like, it seems like they weren't teaching it with their lips. And maybe they were, because I remember there was a time where Jesus actually says, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. You know what I'm saying? So they were, they were flopping in that. They weren't communicating it. They were communicating it with their lips, but not their lives. See, and they weren't teaching the people. And notice, neither were they teaching themselves. Listen to how this could could also apply to us. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 5 to start off with. It says, therefore you have no excuse. And you know, if, and if you're familiar with the way the, the book of Romans is constructed, chapter 1 is just speaking to like out and out card carrying sinners, like blatant sinners. You know what I'm saying? It lists them in Romans 1. It's a long, one of the longest lists in scripture about sinfulness. And it just lays it out. And the whole world goes, Rawr. yeah. I'm guilty. And in chapter 2, you got the religious man saying, yeah, tell them. Tell them how they're sinful. And Paul's like, sorry? Oh, cool. Romans chapter 2 for you. And when he turns on them now, this is what he says. He says, look, therefore you have no excuse, old man. Every one of you who what? Judges. It's up there. It's up there. So you don't have to turn there. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, oh, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the, ve- practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, oh man, oh woman, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And Romans 2 continues. He says, look, 
But if you call yourself a Jew, and this is where this would be, this would powerfully speak to this crowd, but I'm saying, hey, it also speaks to us. He says, but you, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you then who teach others do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing do you steal you who say that one must not commit adultery do you commit adultery you who who abhor idols do you rob temples you who boast in the law dishonor god by breaking the law for as it is written the name of god is blasphemed among the gentiles you notice who he's talking to this is, this is the quote-unquote believers. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, those outside. Why? Because of you. Wow. I'm sweating up here. Because this hits me as hard as it hits you. These Jewish leaders, they're breaking the law... On multiple, it's not even just that they're breaking the law, they're breaking it on multiple levels. Whilst trying to uphold the very law that they undermine. They were quoting the law of Moses but had no regard for the law of Moses. They were quoting God's word but had no regard for God's word. These men are so blind. They were pretending that they were putting this woman in the dock. Which was one thing. When really they were trying to put Jesus in the dock. And how do we know that their motive was evil? Look at verse 6. This they said. Right, remember that's all you've got to look at. Making this easy for you. This they said to do what? To test Jesus. That they might find some charge. To bring against him. See the judgment? Against who? Wait, wait, against who? Against Jesus. See, these men want to be the ultimate judge. And very often, don't we do the same thing? I'm always so quick to point at the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh my gosh. And they always say, and when there's one finger pointing, when one finger pointing at them, there's three pointing back at me. We're so adept and immediate to point out someone else's sin, but we seem so blind to our own. We identify other people's issues with absolute pinpoint accuracy, but struggle to admit or even see our own faults. I didn't get a witness for that. All right. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll see if I can. Amen lights. Amen window frames. Luke 6, 41 to 42. Why do you see the speck? Every time I think about this, I always think about, oh, I know where he's going to go with this a minute. So I'm like, it, shouldn't, it, shouldn't, it should say a splinter. I think some translations say splinter. It's not even a splinter. It's a speck. It's less than a splinter. Oh my gosh. But we, 
We spot that speck from like a mile away. Are you nuts? In somebody else. Right? Why do you see the speck like with a telescope, like with a microscope, right? That is in your brother or in your sister's eye. But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Wow, that's mad. And maybe that's a part of the reason why we, we can't see clearly because we got this big old telephone pole in our, we can't, no wonder, we, no wonder I can't see properly. But I don't know that I got a pole in my eye. It's blinding me. I'm blind to my, he says, how can, verse 42, how can you say to your brother or your sister, hey, bruv, Sis, come, let me help you, because you need help out here. <laughs> let me help to take out the speck that is in your eye. When, when, wait, you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. Hippocrates is the word in Greek. It means chameleon. It means that we move into one area and like the thing, the, the felt is black. You won't see me if you don't look carefully, because like a chameleon, I can change my colors. You know, like when somebody knocks on your door and you just had a half an hour blazing argument with, I don't know, your wife or your child or with your parent. And you're going like 50, like you, you've gone 15 rounds and you're steaming and there's nothing in you, you would say, that can respond. You know, the Bible says um, that a soft answer does what? Turns away wrath. You ain't got no soft answer in you right about now. In the heat of the argument, right? We would argue in that moment. But ding dong. By the time I turn around and I get to the door, I've completely changed my personality. My whole persona. Even the way that I look. The way that I sound. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't change. Now, that's another message, isn't it? I couldn't change it then, but I can ch- and at that moment, <clears throat> see, I'm one thing here momentarily. I'm red, raging red. When by the time I get here, I'm cool. I'm a cool blue because I'm a chameleon and I'm good at this. Why? Because I'm infected with a sinful disease that enables me to do this. There's a, horm- there's, a, there's, a, there's a spiritual hormone in me that enables me to do this easily. Even to the point where I stand back and say, raw, wow. <laughs> Amen. I don't know if anybody can identify with that. Now, he says, you hypocrite. He says, first take the log out of your own eye. This is anticipating that we're all walking around with logs in our eyes. You know what I'm saying? But will we see this? He says, and he says, first take first things first, isn't it? First, is it's not that you don't tell the person that they got a splinter or a speck. I should have said a speck or a splinter, or they got a log in their eye. 
or they got multiple logs in there. Look, see, look, even then, I'm saying, look, they got multiple logs in their eye. I don't. They do. Look, you see, the, 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 the sinfulness of sin. But it's not that we don't tell them, but first, think, first things, first things first. Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is out of your brother's eye. I'm laboring this. <clears throat> I remember about four years ago, <clears throat> I was going to ask for some water. Praise the Lord. I remember about four years ago, <clears throat> can I put that there? Is that in your way? Let me move it. If I was sitting there and I saw that, I'd be like, that's in my way, man. Anyone who's listening to this on MP3, this is why you must come to church. None of this, none of this internet church business, no. Maybe you might be away for a good reason, so I'm not trying to have a go at you. I remember about four years ago, yeah, I was talking to someone at school when I was kind of at Bible school, um, and I was talking to them about another brother. And, and I was talking to them about a brother that was really struggling with sin in their life. And I just couldn't understand it. I'm like, talking to this brother, this guy, he just keeps flopping in this area. And I don't know, like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it should be, like, it should be done already. Like, stop that. You know what I mean? I'm t- I'm having this conversation with a brother about another brother. You know what I mean? And I just couldn't get my head around the fact that this person just kept falling into this certain area of sin. And notice, full of self-righteousness. Yeah? I said, I really don't know what's wrong with this guy. And this person, they picked up my self-righteousness. Now, it's not that what the guy I was talking about was doing wasn't wrong. It was. But first things first. And I was blind in it. This brother, he picked me up in myself and, and noticed very graciously. And this is what makes all the difference. Because a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. The guy very graciously, which is what made it so powerful, he said to me, he said, Rob, he said, be very careful. That brother is struggling in one specific area of sin that you might not struggle in. But it doesn't mean that you are not vulnerable in another area. When I tell you that that hit me so hard. Listen, when, when, when people are gossiping, when people are saying things that you know in your heart like, you know what, there's something about what this person's saying is not good. Now, Proverbs says, our inclination, our sinful inclination is to want to say, tell me more. But really, what we need to do in that moment is do what that brother did to me. You know what I mean? And do it graciously, because, you know what, if he done it abruptly, he could have fallen foul of the same problem. You know what I mean? But graciously, knowing the fact that he could himself fall into that position, Galatians 6. He carefully shared with me what I needed to hear. And you know, it wasn't long after that, the Lord spoke it to me through that brother. And then it wasn't long after that, the Lord sh- he showed me 
He showed me, yes, there are certain strengths in your life, Robert. And you're sitting here, you know what? Even as I look around the room, I see incredible strength in so many of you. In, in every person that I look at and I know, amazing strengths. And you know what? Only because of God's grace, you know, that you and me are strong in any area in our, in, in our lives. Yet there are those gaping holes in our character where, where we are horribly weak. And I saw an area in my character where I was horribly weak. And the Lord has exposed my sinfulness on a next level. And the thing is, he helped me to see that I was blind. And he helped me to see Can I, can, I, can I graciously give you the same advice? Take heed to yourself that when you think you stand strong in one area, you don't fall in another. James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 <clears throat> says, look, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. See who he's speaking to? is the believers. And I'm saying, sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. What? Like what? Wait a minute. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Yo. Verse 12 says there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now this raises another point that needs to be mentioned in order to bring balance and tension to all of the scripture. I'm hoping you're thinking this, you're thinking, thinking mm, I hear what you're saying, no, Pastor Rob, but... Mm. See, one of the most common scriptures amongst non-Christians used to be John 3.16, but not anymore. Now it's Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. I mean, they don't even go on to the next, that, that, that you may not, you be not judged. It's just ju judge not. Don't judge me. Don't judge, like, like, how dare you? Who are you? Who do you think you want to turn it around and ask? Who do you think you are? And I'm saying that you can judge me. Only God can judge me. Get me. See, just leaving it here could cause someone else to then say, no one can judge me, only God can judge me, we shouldn't judge, right? Well, the truth is, if you haven't repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, God has already judged you. And trust me, the judgment is not good, it's bad news. It's like, I, I, I was a postman in it for 17 years. I, you remember back in the day, you ever, you ever heard about a red letter? Back in the day, sometimes in the post, you used to get a letter and it was red at the top. And when you get that letter, sometimes you could see the red bleeding through the envelope and you know, oh my gosh. Sometimes people would take it out on the post, take it out on the poor postman. Wanna chat, wanna chat back? I'm like, I'm just, a, I'm just a messenger. How are you going to blame me? I don't even know who you are. <laughs> I don't know where the letter came from. You know what I mean? You want to take it out on? 
It's like the world needs to know. Okay, as much as you might want to say no one can judge me, that, that actually is because with that is that nobody can judge. Only God. They don't really mean that. But the tr but it's true that God will judge, and the fact is He has already judged. You know what I'm saying? And I remember the first time I went to church as a big man with any sense, and I. And I, and I heard the gospel and I realized I was a sinner. Oh my gosh. I couldn't blame the preacher. Come on. I couldn't blame the preacher. Come on now. I knew that God was speaking to me. And it was God speaking to me. I realized I was a sinner. I see. I was quick to point the finger at rapists, at murderers, at pedophiles. But for the first time then I realized that I was a sinner. Did you know that you can walk around for years and not really realize that you are a sinner? But not only do we have non-Christians saying this, but Christians are saying it as well. Does that then mean that no one can judge anyone? No. And herein we need to, herein we find a need for balance. Remember that Jesus said a few weeks ago in John chapter 7 verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now that sounds like a bit of a contradiction, in a sense. But if you look at clearly what it's saying, it's saying, Do not judge, but judge. I'll, I'll help you by just putting some color in that. Do not judge... But judge, right? Don't judge, some, don't judge someone to the point where you write them off. Your vision is limited. Look, Jesus says, do not judge by appearance. But what do you see? What do I see? I mean, we do see something. But you can't judge someone to the point where you write them off. You would need to know the future in order to do that. For you to judge in that manner. And only God knows the future. Only God can judge someone like that. See, therefore only he can judge with, with such authority and such finality. Don't get into the habit of writing people off. And here's the warning. If you do... You run the risk of being judged by the same standard. And you don't want that. I don't want that. Do not judge. But judge. Now, when it comes to the issue of sin, the Bible is the final authority. Not the culture. Jesus, Lord, help me. The Bible is the final authority, not the culture, but we have often culture, even as Christians, that trumps scripture. How many of you know we need to exegete the culture outside? That means we need to examine it carefully. That's music, art, you know what I'm saying? We need to examine it carefully. We don't, we don't want to ostracize ourselves completely, totally. We don't want to legislate against it. But what we need to do is we need to be able to exegete. We need to be able to say, all right, let's have a look at this film. Don't say you can't go to the cinema. Like they used to say to us when I first become a Christian. I'm like, rah, 
I can't go cinema. I can't watch tele. Like, don't watch the devil vision. I'm like, so, so what am I supposed to do? Honestly, as much as I love God and the, I can't read the Bible all day and night. Like, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? So we don't want to legislate, but we want to be able to interpret what we see and what we hear with clarity, right? We have to exegete our culture. Now, getting back to our text, these men, these men, their culture was greed, lust, and envy. Don't watch the superficial. You'd be like, but they read the Bible. So? But they're in the temple slash church. So? And they sing songs of worship. And? But they wear the right clothes. And they're kitted out in religious garments. Look, they're in the Sunday best. But we, j- but we just saw these outwardly religious leaders celebrate a traditional biblical festival. See, outwardly, they're one thing. But inwardly, they're another. See, and hear this statement. Sometimes you have real saints who look like sinners. But on the other hand, you have sinners that look like saints. So how do we begin to differentiate between the two? Well, a part of it isn't our job. Remember pulling up the weeds along with the good? Part of it is not our job. But then, see, how you begin to differentiate the two partially is by the church. That's one way, isn't it? That's one way of being able to see who's in and who's out. But then it's deeper than that. You actually have the invisible church within the church. See, not all Israel is Israel. And not everyone who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. See? And this is where membership is really helpful. Very, very challenging, but helpful. See, the church is really good at challenging, at judging, in a sense, those who are outside. And we should, with the gospel. But how do you challenge or how do you judge, keeping with the theme of our topic, how do you judge, in a sense, those inside? Well, you judge with the same gospel. 1 Corinthians 5, like, brace yourself for this. It says, Paul says, look, I wrote to you in my letter, writing to the Corinth. Now, if you know anything about Corinth, let me just put this back because you're going to start. I know some of you, some of you like with degrees and masters and mbas and mbnas and all of that you you read the whole text and probably listen to me but some of you are going to read it and not listening so corinth was a very 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 overtly sinful environment in this context in first corinthians chapter five there was a man who was sleeping with his dad's wife who wasn't his mom thankfully it's his stepmom. 
and he was having sex with his with his this is something you want you hear on Tawi, right? This is something that you hear, you know what I'm saying, on East Enders. This was happening in the church in First Corinthians 5. And Paul's like Paul's like, what? Paul's like hmm. And he says, with reference to this, he said, Look, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral. Notice he doesn't just say, I wrote to you not to associate with Christians. He goes deeper than that. Because he knows, as we know, that there are people in the church who are living sexually immoral. I'm not looking at nobody, right? <laughs> so he identifies, he goes straight to the root of the issue. He gets past all superficiality, right? And he says, look, this is going on. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral. He's just going to clarify because we'd be like, mm, you sure, like Pastor Rob, this is going on in the church. Listen, verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, not just those out there, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. It's like, I'm not talking about outside there, because if, if I'm saying you've got to deal with this issue, it's like, how you, you, you can't deal with the issues. He's not talking about outside the church. <laughs> Can you see? He's not talking about outside the church. He says, but now I'm writing, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone. Because how many of you know on your job, at school, you're gonna, you, you rub shoulders with people who are living sexually immoral. You know what I mean? It's like, he's, he's, he, he's saying, in the world, this stuff happens. I'm not saying that you've got, you got to deal with them outside. He says, I'm talking about inside. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name. So you can associate with, with people who are not Christians. But when it comes to the church now, the defining def, defining place of definition, like the line of demarcation that, that should should supposed to separate the two, says I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality. But it's not just that, because we'll all be like, rah, yeah, man. Because we know that, boy, if, if, if it's a sexual immorality, like, boy, if, 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 if man is sexing up one and, like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, boy, and coming church and acting like, and, boy, yeah, that's a serious issue. Like, we, we, all, we all know that that's serious. Right? I mean, and, and, and it goes on in the world so much so that even sometimes we don't see it as serious. But I think on a level in here now, this time of the day, on a, like, we're like, that's serious. That's serious. But he goes on, there's more. He says, look, or greed, someone who's greedy. Or, or someone who's an idolater. Like, I'm like, raw. Okay, the sexual immorality thing. And, and, and going back to what we're saying, it'd be easy to point the finger at someone who's in sexual immorality, but some of this other stuff, it, it doesn't really come up really on the radar. But it's here now the greed or an idol. Now, who doesn't have an idol or multiple idols in their life, whether it's a car or a woman or a man or a potential woman or a potential man that they can't even see, that they desire? And, and, and we create, we don't bow down to wooden statues, but we, we, have, we have these things that we crave for. And without them, we can't live or survive. That's an idol, modern day idol. Right now, the Chris now who who ain't like I'm like raw okay the sexual idolater idolater that's but then 
Oh, there's another, there's another category. Oh, right, there's not what, there's another category over here as well. Like, I'm like, where, like, I've got a feeling that I, I'm in here somewhere. Because I, I, I may not be there, but as I'm moving, I'm like, raw. I bump into someone that looks just like me here. And if not here, then re- reviler. You're not a reviler, is? Did I put it up there in, in parentheses? I did. Because rev- rev- you hear that word in like, what does that mean? Someone who uses scornful or abusive language. Now there's a spectrum because you can get really scornful and really abusive, but there's, you can come to the upper end of the spectrum where you're clever with it. I'm getting signals at the back about time. Oh, drunkard. Nothing wrong with having a drink. Thank the Lord that he helped us to get through that minefield. There's nothing wrong with having a drink. And, and that, I mean, how many of us were set free, you know what I'm saying, through that truth? Because otherwise you've got real issues if you start legislating against alcohol. I mean, you, you, you'd leave Jesus out the door who said, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine with you now until we drink it in my father's kingdom. I'm like, you're going to be the only one left in the room. You know what I mean? Left in the church. Left, you're the only one who deserves heaven. Hey. But drunkenness is another issue. And it's very prevalent in our society. Hence, some do choose not to drink. But then it becomes a problem if I choose not to do it, but then I legislate that you don't do it because I don't do it. Now I'm in danger of legalism because I'm legislating something that scripture doesn't. That's based on conscience. And if you want to do that, I say praise the Lord. You don't want to touch liquor? Good for you. This is a good environment not to drink. But drunkenness or a swindler, I'm like, to some degree as I was reading this, I was thinking, Lord, please you know, I'm reading verses of scripture that I know, I'm familiar with, I've heard before, but you come back to them, you're like, did I, have I ever read this? I'm like, please, Lord, don't let there be anything more in the list. You know them ones? Car, if you ain't already got me, you're about to get me. It says not to even eat with such a one. Paul's like, in the church, there has to be this legitimate, look, verse, judgment, verse 12, 4. What have I to do with judging outsiders, those outside the church, right? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Pastor E said earlier, judgment begins, where? In the house of God, it's first things first, isn't it? As we said earlier. God would deal with those outside. God judges outsiders. He says, you, this is your job. And even the way that the, 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 the guy puts it, I'm like, what? like yo, why you have to use such hard? I'm, I'm about to call you a reviler, Paul. I'm like, yo, purge the evil person from among you. I'm like, wow, that's harsh. Now, I, I referenced all of that. See, now, now, isn't this a great summary of what we've been talking about? Now, if you're a person that struggles with serious, I'll put that in inverted commas, serious church membership, I think we're trying to get serious with our church membership. 
We're, tr- we're trying to get there. You know what I'm saying? But if you're someone that struggles with church membership, yo, listen, for the record, I'm sorry that there ain't more people here today. Listen, if you struggle with church membership, you're not alone. <laughs> Man, everybody struggles with this type of intrusion. Who wants anyone inspecting your life on this kind of level? Like, no, no one relishes this. If they're fully aware of their own sinfulness. But, it, but, but membership for us, we would argue, is the practical outworking of judging with right judgment. God's word, God's truth is the final authority. It's not I, it's not us, it's not any of us judging one another. It's God's word that is doing, it's God who is doing, he's the final authority on issues related to sin. And the church is supposed to be the pillar and the buttress or the ground of truth. We learned that when we went through Timothy, right? And it's because Jesus is the truth. But it's so beautiful, isn't it? At the beginning of John, it says the law came through Moses. But the law is harsh. But it says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we need truth, you know. It's harsh. That's what we just looked at. But we also need grace. We need mercy. We need the gospel. See, And as much as Jesus is gracious, very gracious, he's not verbally offensive, Jesus is not cheeky, he's not rude, but he's brutally honest, grace and truth, right? We've been seeing that in John, and there's a lot more to come, and that's why they want to kill him. These men are overwhelmed with an ungodly anger that blinded them, and they were full of deceit. And as we said, let's not be deceived. This is very easy to do. We have to guard against this because it's a natural inclination. The truth of the matter is, do we want to let God be the judge or do we want to be the judge? See, Jesus is the ultimate judge. These men are in a a bad place, which leads them to stand in judgment of the judge. If they can get a charge against him that would stick... They could have Jesus arrested and possibly executed, right? They want to get rid of him. And Jesus is on the horns of a dilemma, isn't he, in our text? I don't think I was ever going to find my way back, right? He's on the, Jesus is on the horns of a dilemma. If he says, don't stone her in response, then he would be contradicting Moses. Not good. If he says, stone her. Then, he'd be guilty of breaking Roman law, which would get him in trouble. Say one thing, and you're breaking the spiritual law of God. Say the other thing, and you're breaking the judicial law of the land. It seems as if, at least, or at last, they've been able to trap Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Back to our text, in the middle of verse 6. How does Jesus respond? Jesus bent down and wrote. How? 
Now all you guys are doing is looking at the text, come on help me Come on, help me It's like we don't even know one another in here, are you guys so shy? Jesus bent down and he wrote how? Only because I'm trying to make a point With his hand, another translation says With his finger On the ground This is one of the only places, well, this is probably the only place we see Jesus writing anything. You know, you see all of these biographies, no biography in the world as much as biographies on Jesus. We've got four of them in the New Testament, plus everything that everyone has written in history about Jesus. Jesus never wrote nothing about himself. Hey, that alone should tell you something. Hey, but this is, we find Jesus writing something. Notice, no verbal response at this point. Could it be that Jesus is doodling? Because he doesn't know what to say. Seems like maybe they've got Jesus. Maybe they've caught him out. It could seem like that, right? But he was writing something, it says. I wonder if his listeners were reading what he wrote. Here are some suggestions as to what he may have been writing. First of all, the Ten Commandments. To remind them of their sin. Ha. (laughs) It could be argued that God, that is God the Son, Jesus, was doing what God did back in Exodus 20. Writing the law with his own hand. Exodus 31. And he gave to Moses... That is God. When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with what? The finger of God. Historically, during a court proceeding, Roman judges commonly wrote the sentence and then the verdict. They wrote it before they pronounced it. That's one thing. Two was... Could it be that Jesus was writing the names of the religious leaders against their sins (laughs) that they had committed personally? Samuel, he wrote, stealing. Jacob, (laughs) not honoring his parents. Mordecai, texting while driving his chariot. How would you feel if someone exposed your sin in this manner? Free? How about this? Could this be directly related to something the prophet Jeremiah said? Wow. In Jeremiah 17, wow. Verse 5 to 7 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man like these leaders were. Right, But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Verse 9 of Jeremiah 17 says, The heart, classic verse on this thing. Verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's why David said, Lord, search my heart. Because he ain't qualified to search his own heart. You and me are not qualified to search our own heart. Because we always skip stuff. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. It goes beyond the superficial, right? To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. 
When you look at verse 11, it speaks about those who get rich by injustice. Remember who Jesus is speaking to? Religious leaders who are balling financially. And, 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 oh, and it could be argued that Jeremiah, when he, was, when he was speaking this in Jeremiah 17, he could actually have been in the same place in the very temple where Jesus was standing right here as he declared a similar verdict regarding the crimes of the people and the fact that their hearts had turned away from God. Now listen to the hum, sorry, time. Listen to the humdinger and then we, and then we can done, right? Listen to the humdinger. Same chapter, I'm building it up in it. Look, listen, listen to verse 13. O oh Lord, the hope of Israel. <sighs> All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away, notice the distinction. Some turn away, some don't. Think about the theme of John. Lord, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be what? Written in the earth. Which could explain why Jesus is writing on the ground. And the verse goes on to say, for they have forsaken the Lord. Who is what? The fountain of living water. If you remember, which is, this is exactly what Jesus said in the last chapter. In the previous section in verse 37 to 38. As the one who is the fountain of living water. 1 Corinthians 10 says that he's the rock, says that the rock that provided water for the Israelites while they were coming, while they were in the wilderness, that was struck, was actually a picture or foreshadowing of Christ. This gives good reason for the possible placement of this story here in, in John's Gospel. The fact of the matter is, these men didn't bring this woman here because they hated adultery. They brought her here because they hated Jesus. Verse 7. And as they continue to ask him, he, because they're, they're pressing him, isn't it? Remember, Jesus ain't saying nothing right now. Or he could have been writing, right? He said, verse 7, as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. These were judging the woman, but weren't judging the man along with the woman. More importantly, they were judging Jesus. The only people that they weren't judging was themselves. But look how the boomerang that they threw has come back to them. Now, you heard that story about the boomerang. You thought, you never even said nothing about that. Notice how the boomerang that they, it's now beginning to come back on them. I mean, talk about throwing things. These men were about to throw boomerang-shaped stones that are justifiably, fairly righteously coming back now at them. And notice, jokingly, I say Jesus ducks because he sees the boomerang coming. I land the boomerang to hit them and not him. I say that jokingly. Verse 8. And once more he bent, <laughs> he bent down <laughs> and wrote on the ground again. It's like... I mean, talk about powerful words. It's like, we was at a wedding yesterday. It's amazing. I preached the same message three years ago, but with a different emphasis. And I preached it the day after Brent and Temi's wedding. And here I am preaching the same text a day after Nathaniel and Karen's wedding, which was yesterday. And I'm talking about powerful words. I mean, Jesus stands up. Let him who is without sin... It's like the wisdom of, remember Solomon, when he, with this, the baby issue? 
and the, one of the women had lied and died and killed her baby and she was complaining that the other woman's baby was her baby. Solomon's like, all right, bring, all right, where's the living baby? Bring it out. He says, get a sword and chop the baby in two. And, the, and, and, and one woman says, no, give it to the other woman. Solomon's like, boom, you're the real mother. Because the other one was standing up there saying, yeah, kill it. Like that, yeah, whatever. <laughs> in a bitterness. And Solomon with great wisdom. Now, 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 we know that Jesus is, has greater wisdom than Solomon. And one greater than Solomon is now here, right? And Jesus with amazing wisdom says, all right, let him who is with us. He gets out of the conundrum. Slip, like, slips out like Houdini. Ah, the, better than Houdini. I want to, Jesus ain't like Houdini. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, he gets out of it. And words are powerful. Yesterday at the wedding, oh my gosh. Listen. Nathaniel, he stands up, Karen's there, he stood up, and it come time for them to make their vows. All of a sudden, I heard Pastor E say, all right, draw for the scroll. Like, where's the scroll? I'm like, scroll. So one of the best men gives him, a, gives him a scroll and gives Karen a scroll, and they pull out these scrolls. And when I tell you, like, Nathaniel, like, it's like a boxer. I don't know what they shrug off, but he shrugged off something and he stepped to the side like, 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 I'm, like I'm about to deliver something. And I was standing, everyone's standing there thinking, my man pulls his finger and he goes through a whole litany of wonderful things. But he gets to this point where he says, Karen, I want you to, when I tell you the brother set himself like a man, he said, Karen, I want to tell you. He says, I accept you. With all of your, and everyone is expecting him to say, all of your strengths. And he says, I accept you with all of your faults. When the man said that, you could see people visibly respond, like, did the man just say, I accept you with all of your faults? This is something that someone who's been married like me for 25 years should be saying. You don't say that at the beginning of a marriage. How do you understand? With all of your faults. Listen, you literally saw people visibly affected in the, in the, in the crowd. The, the bridesmaids, it was, like, it, it, it was like a Mexican wave. When he said that, they were, all of them just start, all of them. A few of them, you could just immediately see them start crying. Like, just, 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 just start crying. Because it was so powerful. I accept you with all of your faults, powerful words. And we even had a guy grab me and Pastor E at the end of the service. The service was, it was, it, it was evidently so powerful. People bawling and crying. And this guy grabs me and Pastor E. He's like, he's like, just com- like completely just, the wedding, it's, it's a wedding. It was just weird. He just comes straight up. He's like, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you, man's like right now, like right now. We're like, what like bro, like we're trying to pack away the wedding party and move it. He's like, no. He goes, Men need to be men. He he was like, it's it's like what I saw about happening there. I've in my past I've not been a man and I'm I wanna be a man. And 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 we gotta help other men be men. It's like we were like, we were like, we were like, amen, bro. We're like, amen. <laughs> he took, he says, we gotta pray. We, we gotta pray right now. It's like, he grabbed me up. I was like, it's like right, we got, he went, you pray. Pastor, Pastor, and I'm just saying, just those words 
was so powerful. It had such an amazing effect. And I'm saying, Jesus' words, they're powerful. He's like, he who is without sin, you cast the first stone. And Jesus' words have similar, powerful, visible impact. Look at verse 9. We're nearly done. Sorry. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, you know. Look, you see the visible impact? Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, huh? Wow. What? He said, what? He said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now as we finish. Now there's a lot that I said the last time when I preached that I didn't say today. So if you want to hear the other stuff, you can. I had a different emphasis today. But for now, this is crazy. All the examples that we've seen today, the religious leaders, and even the picture of ourselves. Smacks of judgment without mercy. If we're honest. And none of us, none of us are fully qualified to judge in a conclusive sense. Yet the one who is fully qualified, fully certified to judge with clarity, not just on the basis of superficial limited vision, the one who sees all things clearly, past, present and future, chooses to show grace and mercy to one who deserved judgment. Wow. Jesus, the ultimate judge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It's amazing. Lord, we're incapable of plumbing the complete and utter total depths of understanding and the breadth of your word. It's just amazing. Lord, we just run out of time, run out of words, run out of energy to fully not only com- communicate and articulate it, but to understand it. And Father, we're just amazed at how you... Father, Jesus, he doesn't pet when it comes to sin. And we know that because he felt the full force of the penalty of sin when he went to the cross. He knows, he knows the, the implications of sin better than anyone else does. And he says to this woman, listen, you need to understand the implications. But I'm not going to allow the implications to have its full impact on you. I forgive you. You deserve judgment, but I forgive you. Father, you give grace to the humble. But you resist the proud. And Lord, that's what these men were in this text. They were arrogant. They were haughty, heady. They were hard-hearted and high-minded. And they didn't see their own sinfulness. They were, they were smart, but they were stupid. Lord, they, they, they had their eyes wide open, but they couldn't see. 
and you resisted them. And there's always only two groups. Father, would you help us to see this and to understand the goodness, but also the severity of God. And would you help us to respond, Lord, in humility, recognizing, even if we don't fully recognize all of our sin, Lord, help us to recognize it, even if it's one element of our sinfulness, and that we would be humbled, Lord. And I know if you didn't do it this morning, this afternoon, Lord, like with me, Lord, you will do it in our lives. And you will show us in the week, in the next month, in the next year, in the next decade, Lord, where we fall short, where we have idols, where we're swindlers, Lord, where we're murderers, Lord, where we are adulterers, Lord, where we're fornicators. You, sh- you will show us these areas that we're so blind to, Lord, because sin is deceitful and it tricks us. We need your help, Lord, so that we can see genuinely and clearly what we really are in the light of who you really are. And we just want to say thank you. And ask that you give us the grace to respond, Lord, to to this message in a way that would bring, bring you glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.